When I made it to my home place, I found triumph of the will. Where once lay a shining city, stood a fortress on a I'm Henry. This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. For those new to the podcast, BT, Danny, and I are three leftist combat veterans who take the military and veteran stories of the day and provide some much-needed historical context and examination. The United States Supreme Court has recently ruled that the families of the victims of the USS Cole bombing cannot sue foreign governments involved with providing support to the terrorists who did it. The Trump administration even backed the decision. As if the decision had gone the other way, the deaths and injuries our government has caused through foreign intervention would also potentially be able to be held civilly liable. A quote from Reuters. Quote, in an 8-1 to decision, the justices overturned a lower court's decision that had allowed the sailors to collect the damages from certain, certain banks that held Sudan's assets. The decision represents a major victory for Sudan, which signifies that it didn't provide any support to the al-Qaeda militant group for the attack in Yemen. A lower court had levied damages by default because Sudan did not defend itself against allegations that it provided support to the Islamist. Islamist militant group. Fifteen of the injured sailors and three of their spouses sued the government of Sudan in 2010 in Washington. At issue was whether mailing the lawsuit to Sudan's embassy violated the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, a U.S. law governing when foreign governments may be sued in American courts. The Trump administration had told the justices that a ruling against Sudan could impact how the U.S. government is treated by foreign courts because the United States rejects judicial notices delivered to its embassies. Sailors in particular were highly critical of the administration's position. Quote, particularly Particularly given this administration's solicitude for veterans, its decision to side with a state sponsor of terrorism against men and women who are seeking to recover from grievous injuries suffered in the service of our country, is inexplicable and distressing, end quote. So the United States does not acknowledge the existence of the International Criminal Court. But more than that, I want everybody to think about what this tells our men and women in uniform. Not only are we telling them that we will not acknowledge who has harmed them, we will prevent other governments from doing the same if there's a chance that America could be blamed. This is the America first Trump wants to build, quote, an America that does exactly what the fuck it wants. And I'm not trying to pick on Trump here. Plenty of other presidents and political leaders have marginalized U.S. troops' lives in the same way. George W. Bush, for example, was willing to cut the VA's budget in the final 18 months of his presidency, right when U.S. veterans at the height of the Iraq war needed that care the most. This also connects to the idea that idea about the Department of Defense refusing to acknowledge moral injury 
while the Department of Veterans Affairs does acknowledge it. This is a, a real spot of fucking American cognitive dissonance that needs to be fixed. Even if U.S. citizens choose to live in a warmonger-esque nation, the responsibility to seek justice on behalf of those you say fight for your freedom should always be a priority. I'm really, really glad that you brought up the International Criminal Court, and I'll tell you why. I've written about it briefly in the past, and I've always found it enormously hypocritical that the United States would be the first one to trumpet human rights and, and American values as like somehow equivalent to human rights across the world, and then at the same time say we can't be beholden to the same rules as everybody else at the International Criminal Court because God forbid one of our soldiers or one of our politicians who fights an illegal war, think all the people in the Bush administration, might be indicted and held accountable for their actions. And you know what, America? Washington, Trump, Bush, even Obama, you can't have it both ways. Either you believe in international criminal law, international human rights law, or you do not. And the fact that there are a lot of countries who signed out to the ICC who are pretty nefarious characters, right? And, and uh, so I'm not saying signing up for the ICC is in and of itself enough. You know, it's not. It's not in and of itself enough. But it's indicative of our hypocrisy, you know? Undoubtedly indicative of our hypocrisy. And when it comes to the coal, or when it comes to 9-11, right, because there were similar lawsuits, right, where there was this question of whether Saudi Arabia could be held accountable in the case of 9-11, right, which, of course, they ought to be, one, one would assume. I mean, 15 out of 19 hijackers come from the Saudis. There's some, you know, shady dealings between certain princes and uh, financial figures in Saudi Arabia and some of these, some of these terrorists, 9-11 uh, hijackers specifically. And it's amazing how quick the United States will run to the defense of certain people, specifically the Saudis, the Israelis, the Egyptians. It's like they could do no wrong because they're American, get ready for it, quote unquote, partners. And I love that word. I love partners. It's better than allies. You know, it's a, I, I want someone to explain to me like the, like the spectrum of words. There's like allies, adversaries, you know, rogue states, and then there's partners. And is a partner an ally or is a partner worse or more? I don't know. But we defend these people, right? Um, against international criminal law, right? So Israel has been denounced by UN resolution after UN resolution, and we just say, no, we veto it. You know, we're not going to enforce it. We're not going to let the world enforce it because we're, we're still the big kid on the block, right? Especially when it comes to the military uh, and the expeditionary nature of our military and the interventionist nature of our military and militarism. But yeah, I mean, this, this is a big issue. Um, the United States will never regain its credibility on quote the arab street or more likely just the global street at this point unless some of this hypocrisy is tempered back because uh right now i'm sometimes a little internationally embarrassed about my government it's not that i'm embarrassed of my country per se i mean i'm still on the fence about that i mean i'm proud of certain aspects of our country and certain people in our country you know i don't think we're all evil but uh U.S. government, Washington, policymaker actions, they're internationally embarrassing. And there's a reason why Americans are just pilloried across the world. Yeah, that's great. 
I think that was a good one. All right. So next, I want to talk a little bit about Iran, the good old Islamic Republic of Iran. And, you know, some people have called me an Iran apologist. I think more likely I'm just not an I'm just not an Iranophobe, right? And in this day and age, even even questioning things from an Iranian perspective, even even admitting that they have a right, you know, to to have some regional influence or their own their own uh, national interests, national needs, is like to be considered like pro-Iran, you know, just like people say I'm pro-Russia, right? Because I defend certain, you know, not only defend Russians, I, de I defend detente with Russia, defend the notion that we should be working together to try to defuse tensions. You know, that makes me pro-Russia, right? But like, you know, there's this article in the American Conservative by Scott Ritter, pretty good article. It's called, uh, America just declared war on Iran and nobody blinked. It's a pretty provocative title. Of course, it's the American Conservative and it's not at the New York Times, right? So not enough people are gonna read it, even though it's a great, it's a great news outlet. What he's referring to is the fact that now, for the first time, the Trump administration has decided to designate the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, the IRGC, which is an actual part of their, their army and their government. They've been designated as a foreign terrorist organization, which is FTO, under Section 219 of the Immigration and Nationality Act, right? So this was announced on April 8th. And it takes effect on April 15th, so it's already taken effect as of yesterday because we're recording here on the 16th. All right. Trump said, this designation will be the first time that the United States has ever named a part of another government as an FTO. This sends a clear message to Tehran, da, 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 da. The important part of that is this action <laughs> right, will be the first time ever that the United States has named a part of another government as a foreign terrorist organization. That means like we never designated the KGB, for example, during the Cold War as a foreign terrorist organization, right? You know, we never declared the Iraqi army under Saddam Hussein to be a foreign terrorist organization. So this is a big deal, man. And I don't love everything about the IRGC, specifically their Quds Force, which supports uh, various proxy forces uh, around the Middle East from Yemen to, although it's overestimated in Yemen, but Hezbollah in uh, in, in Lebanon and, you know, fights for Assad in Syria. This is, is, is a really, really big deal. Um, I don't know for a fact that I agree with Scott Ritter that it's a declaration of war or that it will actually inevitably lead to military intervention, right, or, 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 or shooting war between us and Iran. What I do know is it's a big deal and it's a big step in that direction. And with John Bolton as National Security Advisor and good old Mike Pompeo as the Secretary of State, two of the most historic, intense Iranophobes in American government history, the fact that they're in such prominent positions in foreign policy does scare me because this decision linked with these lunatics running our foreign policy is very scary. Now, think about how big of a deal this is. Just, I'm not the guy who thinks that Trump is such an anomaly or that we have to always be anti-Trump or that Trump has changed the game. I tend to think the American empire has really been just, you know, flowing along between all kinds of different administrations. And in that sense, Trump is more a reflection of our time than personally an anomaly. Now, of course, his personality is very anomalous. But 
during 2000, the period from like 2004 through at least 2011, right, the second half of the Iraqan occupation, the IRGC was supporting Iraqi Shiite militias like the Mahdi Army, right, uh, and they were using what were called explosively formed penetrators, uh, EFPs. They were very sophisticated, homemade IED that could actually pierce our tanks and turn our Humvees into Swiss cheese. And they were responsible for maybe a thousand American soldiers' deaths, right? By most estimates over those years. Even at the height of that collusion between the IRGC and the Shia militias, George W. Bush, not exactly a dove, right? Not exactly a liberal uh, wuss. He never took the step of designating an actual part of Iran's army, the IRGC, of their of the government, the IRGC is a terrorist organization, because he understood that it's only a symbolic move, but the only thing it does is escalate tensions. And now to Obama, to his credit, actually not only de-escalated in Iraq finally, although he went back in due to the Islamic State, but signed this Iran nuclear deal, right, the Joint uh, Comprehensive Program, right, JCPOA. And he did it, did. it did have the effect of lessening some tensions overall. It's not perfect. It was never a perfect deal. There's no such thing as a perfect deal. But this is a flagrant poke in the eye at Iran. Someone has to explain to me how this man thinks about foreign policy. What do I mean by that? Well, every few months, he gets his Twitter machine out, right, probably on the toilet, and he says something utterly fucking – Earthy and commonsensical. Like, I just made that word up. He'll say, like, we need to get out of Syria now, right? No, he doesn't do anything about it, but he says we should. He's right. Or he'll say, U.S. defense budgets are out of control. He doesn't do anything about it. He actually increases them right after he says that. Or he'll say, we shouldn't still be in Iraq. It's a dumb war. You know, we shouldn't be in Afghanistan. It's a waste of time. My instincts are to pull out. So he says all this reasonable shit. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if it's an intellectual thing or it's his heart or he has Tourette's. I don't know what it is that makes him every once in a while say something reasonable, but he does. But then at the same time, he's like, no more dumb wars, but I'm going to threaten Venezuela with a military intervention. What? No more dumb wars, but I'm going to escalate tension with Iran. The fuck? Right? There's no consistency is my point. Uh, or, or yeah, or like he'll, he'll, form, he'll, he'll be willing to have detente with Russia and North Korea, nuclear armed, but he's not willing to improve relations and lessen tensions with Iran, which doesn't have nuclear weapons yet, right? And, and isn't able to do it for a decent breakout period, right? And all the other Europeans are still in the deal, right, in the nuclear deal. So, look, keep your eye on Iran. You know, you've heard me say don't sleep on Pakistan. Look, listeners, don't sleep on Iran. There is nothing in the world that the neocon holdovers like Pompeo and Bolton, and there is nothing in the world that the assistant president of the United States, Benjamin Netanyahu, yeah, yeah, you heard that right. Uh, there is nothing that Netanyahu wants more, and that the Israeli right wants more than an American invasion or attack or bloody nose attack on Iran, right? Israel would love American blood to be shed for Israeli right-wing policy in Iran. So look, this conglomeration of, of crazy could very well lead to a war in Iran, especially if the... Uh, tail starts wagging the dog, right? If approval levels for a president go down a little too far, Bill Clinton knew this too. Uh, drop a few bombs on a new country, wave the flag a little bit, right? Have eagles flying across the screen on Fox News, war with Iran, right? It's a good way to get the presidential numbers up because, you know, 
war presidents, they always get a bump, right? Because we're fucking sick in the head as Americans. So we actually give a bump to the president who starts a war, right? Or is willing to uh, put out for us. So look, bottom line on this, the decision to designate the IRGC, and I'm no fan of the IRGC. Some of the things they do are rather nefarious. But the decision to designate an actual part of a foreign government as a foreign terrorist organization, it is, uh, it is a big deal. It is extraordinarily rare, and it is divisive and going to increase tensions with a country we don't need and don't want to fight, or at least we shouldn't want to fight. Because I will tell you, we will win the first engagements, but it'll be ugly. It'll be a forever occupation. We're going to get a little bit more of a bloody nose when their missiles start hitting our ships than we think we are. And you know what? What have we learned over the last 18 years? What should we have learned? Foreigners, no matter who they are, they don't like being occupied by Americans or anybody else for that matter. And they may well rally around their own flag, rally around their own government, no matter how, no matter how awful the government is, in order to expel the invader. If we haven't learned the lesson that the efficacy of military intervention, specifically military occupation on the ground, is questionable, then no one is paying attention. This scares me. Fucking Bolton scares me. Fucking Pompeo scares me. Trump, I don't understand him. I, I don't know how his mind works. This is a big deal, guys. Danny, can you can you elaborate a little bit on the use of the word terrorism as it pertains to us? Like the, I know that that part of Bush's push into Iraq talked about, um, you know, we're we're going to go meet terrorists wherever they are and everything, but we we didn't look at them as any portion of the Iraqi military, and so you know that discrepancy between terrorists and an official military, which of course here we're we're entirely marrying the two how should we look at this in terms of the abuse of the word terrorism yeah that's a good point you know that um that i don't like the word anymore i mean in speech after speech i always put terrorism in air quotes like an idiot and it's lost all meaning that's it, it's just it it's lost all meaning you know if everyone america fights as a terrorist despite the gradations and the nuance between the different groups we fight then the entire word use it loses all meaning. So, okay. In other words, the IRGC is a terrorist organization, according to this, presumably because they train and supply and sometimes fight alongside proxy groups in the Middle East that we don't like. Well, then is Saudi Arabia's government terrorist because they terror bomb Yemeni civilians from the sky? Right? What's worse, hitting a school bus full of a few classes of kids? Or a suicide bomber killing kids on an Israeli bus. Is there a difference? Is there a difference whether a Palestinian with a suicide vest does it or whether a sophisticated plane built in America does it? To me, the death is death. Terror is terror, right? So it's, it's lost all meaning because we're not consistent with it. And also, if the IRGC is terrorist, then the Saudi intelligence services should be terrorists too. Because we Absolutely. know that they supported al-Nusra, which was al-Qaeda in Syria just like three years ago. So if terrorist just means, and I fear it does, anyone that our government doesn't like, then it's a useless word, especially when we have a government now, we have an administration now, and this is a little unique, that isn't really willing to use the word terrorist when there's a mass shooting or a right-wing American domestically shoots up a school, nope. right? We really we don't want to use, no, he's, he's misguided, he's crazy, right? He's mentally ill. So look, 
either apply a consistent definition to the word terrorist or drop it from the lingo. Quite frankly, it's t- I think it's got it's time to go. It's 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 worn out its welcome. It's worn out its use, and uh, yeah, I, I think this is an utterly inconsistent move. I want to say one last thing about this article, right? Who do you think was most happy about this decision? I'll tell you who: the assistant president of the United States, Benjamin Netanyahu. He tweeted tweeted so him and Trump they're like blood brothers. He tweeted the following: "Thank you, my dear friend, President Donald Trump." for deciding to declare the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps as a terrorist organization. Thank you for answering another one of my main important requests, which serves the interests of our country and the countries of the region. Dude, this motherfucker, Netanyahu, he don't play. He don't even, like, code his words anymore. He's like, hey, thanks for doing something that's in our interests. I mean, he, that's what he said. That's what he outright said. I mean, who is – who's in charge of who here? Is the United States government under the control of, 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 a, of a right-wing extremist government halfway across the world in Israel? I'm not a big terror – I'm not a big uh, conspiracy theory guy, but I'll tell you. It's getting really, really hard not to think that Netanyahu is, uh, is the director uh, of the marionette, which is, uh, which is Trump. It's, it's ugly. It's scary. And uh, I'm telling you, keep your eye on Iran. Don't sleep on Iran because – we are capable of another stupid war. If we haven't proven that, then you're not paying attention. Oh God, yes. And and like you mentioned earlier, that we we the military, the the politicians in the U.S. We've gotten so used to the small war, the the counterinsurgency bullshit, that people easily forget. You know, like you said, missiles hitting ships in the Gulf. It will not be a low casualty count. It will not be a 4,000 American troop dead war. It, 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 and people need to wrap their minds around that. Yes, absolutely. Um, no war with Iran necessary. No war with Iran um, would turn out well. Okay, Just like war with Russia. doesn't need to happen, and it wouldn't end well. doesn't mean we'd lose. just means we wouldn't win. And sometimes not winning is the same as losing. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us, but we can't do it all. We need you to share an episode of ours with somebody, anyone who you might think could be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name. Advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and the violence inflicted by some of those same minorities around the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please share this with them. But sharing our episodes is just one of the many ways you can support the podcast. In addition, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping BT, Danny, and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of right now. 
So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Matthew Ho, Will Arenz, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James Higgins, James Obar, Adam Bellows, and Eric Phillips. Your contributions are so helpful to us. Thank you all so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Let's get back to the podcast. Absolutely. So we haven't had a chance yet to talk about um, Chelsea Manning or Julian Assange. And I think it's really important that we, we touch on that a little bit, especially about, about uh, Chelsea Manning. So for, for those just coming into the story, uh, Chelsea, formerly known as, as Bradley Manning, is a former U.S. Army intel analyst who provided classified information to WikiLeaks on a large number of State Department cables and uh, uh, the uh, what, what are called now the Iraq and Afghanistan war logs. Now, these disclosures, which famously came through WikiLeaks, exposed the U.S. military's treatment of unarmed civilians, um, most famously in my mind that included a video from an Apache helicopter, which showed the pilot killing two unarmed Reuters journalists whom the pilot thought were insurgents. Now, certainly that wasn't the only revelation and not the biggest revelation, but it is one of the most visible ones. Since the 5th of March, Manning has been held without bail for refusing to testify in a grand jury proceeding involving a newly unsealed indictment against Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Now, it's not clear right now if he will indeed be extradited to the U.S. to face charges um, with being involved with, and I quote here, a non-state hostile intelligence service. There's another useless one like terrorism, Danny. Um, the Justice Department believes that Assange did not simply accept the Iraq war logs from Manning, but instead assisted in breaking a password for the secure system used by Intel analysts, which allowed Manning to access portions of the CIPRNET. That's what we would call the secure system that the military uses to catalog intelligence. And before we started this morning, I, I texted my friend Kagan, who's been on the podcast before. He's a former Intel analyst, and I wanted to know, get, get some thoughts from him on, on, on what he thought about this. And Kagan said, you know, I don't know if I could have done what she did because it's a brave act to disclose classified information knowing the consequences. She's chosen this really courageous path, not allowing the government to intimidate her into giving up her contacts with WikiLeaks. Honestly, it looks as if no deaths were indeed caused by the release of info, and she did expose a ton of embarrassing stuff for the U.S. government. Um, I'm sure they're going to try and charge us on with releasing uh, all the info WikiLeaks has ever received. So then we come to Julian Assange, and I personally consider Julian Assange to be a journalist. That is, that is essentially what he does. It, it, it's not always... Uh, there's, there's not always positive stuff with him, but uh, overall, that's what, what's going on there. The information he assisted in brokering didn't originate with him, no different than an American-based reporter who has a source of some kind. The idea that our government should prosecute him for exposing their own excess violence and failure to protect civilians in a war zone, it's just fucking dumbfounding to me. But more than that, and, and Danny, I'm sure you'll have a lot to say about this, is the idea that by our government prosecuting Mr. Assange, 
It will open the door for other journalists to be prosecuted in the same way, possibly over much less valuable information. We've been talking a little bit about Trump today. We're all familiar with his antics. Do we believe that if it suddenly somehow becomes legal, and I'm using legal here in its loosest definition, if it somehow becomes legal to go after journalists based on who their sources are or sources they may have been connected to in the past, it will be the complete end of freedom of the press in our country. Reporters must now decide what they value more, their freedom or their professional integrity. The password situation, as far as whether or not Assange actually helped with the password or just received the Iraq war logs, it does change the calculus a little bit. As I'm hoping, or I'm, I'm excuse me, not hoping, huh, I'm guessing the Justice Department is hoping they can wait Manning out. She is able to be held by the grand jury for a minimum of 18 months, and that time can be doubled if requested by a judge, I believe. If I were Chelsea Manning, the moment I was released, I would leave the United States. I realized that would be a, a really hard pill to swallow, um, but we, we saw what happened with Edward Snowden, and my concern is that she'll never have any peace as long as these kind of proceedings can put her back in confinement. Um, if you've read about Manning's story, then you know that she's already been through years of horrifying treatment um, at the hands of our federal prison system, and thank, thank goodness for her that her sentence was commuted by, uh, by President Obama. Both Chelsea and Julian are being prosecuted for embarrassing and shaming the United States. And you know what? I'm fucking proud of them. Mr. Assange was locked in the embassy for what, like six, seven years. He essentially had become a prisoner of theirs with the last time that they even took his internet access. And if I remember correctly, Chelsea ended up spending seven years in federal prison before, uh, before it got commuted. So, Think about this, folks. Think about understanding how this could be the end of freedom of the press in our country and about the kinds of stories, and like I mentioned, lesser stories, things that are not nearly as important as this, being used to jail, coerce, manipulate journalists in all kinds of horrifying ways. You know, I agree with you that this is, this is a serious, serious attack on journalism. Saying that does not mean you have to like Julian Assange personally. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everything he reports. It just means that he's a conduit to some extent of information which is journalistic in nature. And this country of ours is at war with whistleblowers. And you know the scariest part about it is that it's not just the government that's at war with whistleblowers. The U.S. government has always been at war with whistleblowers, right? Pentagon Papers, we throw Ellsberg, you know, under the bus. We break into a psychiatrist's office, et cetera, et cetera, right? We, we you know, slam his name, right? We throw sludge at his reputation. Um, before that, you got, you know, you got guys like Eugene Debs, who's like sent to federal prison for protesting peacefully, right? Giving a peaceful speech against the draft. I mean, we have a long history of fighting whistleblowers, and the government is look, governments are inherently adversarial towards whistleblowers. Okay, they're 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 scared of journalism, even though freedom of the press is consecrated in our constitution. The reality is that the nature of government is to accumulate more power and have less checks on that power. So yeah, of course the government would be against whistleblowers, but we're at a time now where the people of America, the majority of the population has like no sympathy for whistleblowers. 
Like, why has there not been more support for Edward Snowden, more support for Chelsea Manning, more support for the Iraq war logs, right, and the leaks? It's amazing to me. This is not a good time. And Bob Shear from the LA Times, who runs Truth Dig and who uh, had me out in LA for a week, we did a podcast about this. And he kept saying over and over again, this is not a good time to be a whistleblower, right? And because it's not a good time to be a whistleblower, you got to worry there won't be more, right? You said that you think that um, Chelsea Manning, maybe she should leave the United States if she gets out. And I agree with you. If I was her, I would put so much, so many miles between me and this godforsaken government as I could. That's what I would do. But that is scary. Because if there's no place in our society for whistleblowers anymore, if whistleblowers don't feel that they could even continue to live in the country of their birth just because they decided to blow the whistle on some sort of illegal or immoral policy, then our country is sick on the inside. And shame on the left. Shame on the mainstream left for not coming to defense, at least partially come to the defense of these people. Shame on the left. That's cowardly. You know, sometimes I just wonder, do we even have an opposition in this country anymore? I mean, really, do we even really? All we have is an anti-Trump wing, people who don't really like him as a person, people who aren't too excited about his language. It's like, do we have an anti-Trump movement or do we have a true opposition? I don't think we have an opposition in this country. Now, I think the base of the Democratic Party is moving in a good direction, especially the youth, right? especially people of color, especially the women. But the leadership, the leadership of the Democratic Party, the leadership of the liberal media, liberal in quotes, they will sell Snowden and Assange and Manning right up the road first chance they get because they're so scared of being broad brushed with that anti-American slogan that the Republicans and the right are so willing to just throw on them. They're so scared of it that they overreact and they overcompensate. One last thing about Chelsea Manning and the Iraq war logs, right? So she released all those State Department files, right? Uh, and then she released files thousands and millions of like reports from everyday soldiers like reports that i sent like casualty reports that i sent up were in those uh, wikileaks files and the reason i know that is because when i was writing my book on iraq i found radio transmissions that were transcribed from you know uh black knight white one to you know destroyer talk so I was Black Knight White One, right? So it was really bizarre to read because it was like me like reporting casualties in my, in my platoon. And actually I was able to build the narrative of like some of the firefights and like IED strikes that I was in by using the illegal, I guess, because the government didn't like them, but they made it into my book and no one cared. Uh, no one paid enough attention is what happened. Uh, I used the the timelines and stuff to be accurate because, of the, the you know, it was like real time first, you know, first person uh, primary sources. But what those logs told us and why I think Chelsea Manning did a service to the United States, the people of the United States, is it demonstrated that our generals and our national security civilian administration under George W. Bush had been lying to the American people. What were they lying about? I'll tell you. This is in my book as well. During 2006 and 2007, especially 2006, the Iraqi people, because of the chaos that we kind of provoked in the country, they went to war with each other. Sunni versus goddamn Shia. And it was a fucking ethnic cleansing campaign. It's the only way to call it. It's the only thing to call it. Maybe half a million dead, bodies in the streets every morning that we would pick up and report to the Iraqi police. Right? We report the numbers of bodies found to our squadron talk. It was something we counted. 
we counted this. We were told to count these, right? At the same time that there's undoubtedly, right, a civil war being fought in Iraq, you've got every official in the George W. Bush administration, including like Don Rumsfeld, and you've got the generals in charge of the war, probably coached to say this, by the way, by the Bush administration, guys like George Casey, right? Four-star generals saying, and all the public affairs officers telling the media, talking at press conferences and saying, no, we're not using the word civil war. There is no civil war. No, it's not a civil war in Iraq. And the WikiLeaks files showed that they were lying because junior officers and mid-level officers on the ground had been decrying what was happening as a civil war for years. And your government lied to you. Your military that you so adulate, your generals that you so fawn over, they lied to you. And they're still lying to you guys. They're still lying to you. And you know what? Chelsea Manning, thank you for that. Thank you for the vindication of an officer who knew they were lying and was so frustrated by watching the death and destruction in those streets every day, knowing that the American government and the American military was responsible for unleashing that violence. Knowing that, seeing that, and having to listen to four-star fucking generals lie to the American people. Thank you, Chelsea Manning, for bringing that out. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I noticed one little thing that I, did, I didn't know um, beforehand about the Iraq war logs, and it it mentioned that I don't know if this was the entirety of the Iraq War or just portions of it, but that generally speaking, we farmed out any death investigations of civilians to the Iraqi police. We didn't actually take our time and investigate it ourselves to see what it was. And I'm sure that this that the trying to deny the, the fact that the Civil War was definitely a part of that. Um, yeah, I. I Stomaching, stomaching, knowing how much pain that we caused, uh, and I, I use we loosely. I mean that the you know, U.S. military caused there, and that we wouldn't investigate it is is just so fucked up. It really, really is. And I remember that. I mean, I remember what was important and what wasn't when I was a platoon leader in Iraq, right? And I was at the low level. It's not like I was a general. I mean, I, but I, I was pretty little smart little guy right smarter than your average bear paying attention to what was going on around me reading extensively and um it was apparent to me that american military deaths or attacks on the american military those were worth reporting right those were really important those were going to be investigated heavily the intel people were going to look into it but it was very clear early on to me that the death of an iraqi civilian as long as we didn't cause it right as long as we didn't directly cause it i mean as long as i didn't shoot them um that was not something we were particularly worried about. Yeah, they wanted us to report it. It's still a SIG act, but it wasn't the kind of SIG act, which is significant activities. These are events that we report and, and make something called a storyboard or, or a significant one-page report on. Um, yeah, we, we would report them as SIG acts. Yeah, we'd count them, but very clear that that's not something that was going to get in front of the colonel or the general that night. They were more interested in other things. And, and, the, and the policy really was hand the bodies over to the Iraqi police and let them figure it out. The level of – the lack of empathy there, the, the level of like disassociation with what we had unleashed is really quite criminal when you think about it. You know, It's just as criminals when we let all that looting happen in 2003 and we didn't protect anything except the Ministry of Oil, you know, and we just let this go on. We let this country tear itself apart. Well, guys, if you invade a country, international law says you are responsible responsible as the occupying power for the temporary uh, provision of law and order and basic services to the population. 
This is international law. This is the Geneva Conventions. And so in that sense, if a massive civil war breaks out because you sort of destabilized the country, it's your responsibility under international legal military like law, right? International war crimes law to stop it or to do your best to stop it or at least be honest about the fact that it's going on and, and think of ways that you can take action. And now I don't even know if we could have taken action. That's the truth. I mean, I, it was so bad that in defense of the generals, we didn't have the number of troops or the legitimacy that could, I don't think the, I don't think the American army had even if we threw the whole army into Iraq I don't know if we could have stopped the killing I, ju I just don't I, I don't I don't have faith that we I think American military power is much more limited than we think so yeah I, I, but at least we could have told the truth about it at least we could have said you know what we fucked this up shit's bad over there no we didn't want to have that honest conversation instead we denied that there was a civil war and shame on them shame on all of them and you know what all those same people, they're making six and seven figure salaries, either in or out of government today. They're the heads of like corporate boards where all they got to do is show up once a week for their million dollar salary. They're still, these people are still talking heads on CNN and MSNBC and of course Fox. You know, the people who lie to us, there's been no consequences for them. No consequences for them. But you know who there's been consequences for? Chelsea Manning. Seven years in federal prison. One of the most stringent, draconian sentences ever passed down against the whistleblower in U.S. history. Thanks, Obama, by the way. Okay, Let's not make this a partisan issue. Thanks, Obama. This is serious. If only the whistleblower faces consequences and not the liar or the deceiver who really has the power in American government. If only the whistleblower is punished, guess what there'll be less of? Whistleblowers. No, it was uh, <clears throat> horrifying and breathtaking how quickly Reality Winners' situation went. That it, you know, from putting out a single a single piece of paper that the American people should have had in the first place, and now she's serving what is it? I think like sixty three months um, for for doing that. And yeah, there there is no there's no Shangri La. There's no, there's no happy ending for any of those people. Um, you know, we've gotten, I mean, like there's people like Daniel Ellsberg, who is now, you know, a, a, a storied person among the, the anti-war left. Um, but it, but even for him, like you mentioned about, you know, his, his shrinks office getting broken into, you know, it, it could have gone very much different for him. He, he was very fortunate. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just horrifying. Absolutely. And, you know, moving on to our next topic and, and I, I chose this one to go next for a uh, good reason i want to talk about the israeli elections and our friend assistant president of the united states benjamin netanyahu as i will call him from now on um one of the reasons julie i i, I just coined it in my own head i felt really good about it it was really clever i'm gonna copyright that right as as if you'd ever hear that on mainstream media right even on the left uh so why is julian assange persona non grata with both conservative Americans who you expect it from because they hate all free speech and liberal Americans, right? Who are fucking just vacuous and scared, right? Why is there a consensus that Julian Assange is so bad? I don't think he's a perfect guy, by the way, but why is he so bad? Well, he's a villain because allegedly, right? According to the story of the mainstream left, he was personally responsible for 
Hillary Clinton losing the election, right? That he was somehow personally responsible because he was colluding with Russia to release emails, right, to meddle in our elections. That's the story. Now, looks like the Mueller report doesn't tell that story. It looks as though there's been no there there, right, when it comes to Russiagate. Okay, and I know here my liberal friends are going to fucking lose their shit when I say that, and I've been predicting it for two years, that there's not going to be a lot of substance, that Trump's administration is too buffoonish to have the capacity or the intent, well, at least the capacity, to fucking rig an election with, with Putin. But they're just not savvy enough. I, I knew this was going to happen. I just did. But if you believe the fairy tale, then Assange is evil. I mean, he's the reason we got Trump. And if you believe Trump is that evil, if you believe he's singularly evil, and I can't stand the guy, but I'm not willing to say he's as singular as people say he is, then Assange is, is obviously the devil. But you know what no one ever talks about? Israeli meddling in our elections, which I would submit is far more overt and far more nefarious than anything the Russians do. Netanyahu gave an anti-Obama and, by extension, anti-Democratic Party speech in front of a joint session of Congress in the midst of an election year. It's questionably legal, and it's undoubtedly unethical and against the spirit of free and fair elections for a foreign head of state to give an anti-incumbent, right, anti-incumbent administration party speech in front of our own Congress, to, and he got like 50 rounds of applause, standing ovations. And you know what? Chuck Schumer is one of the guys standing up and clapping. So don't get so high and mighty, liberals, right? Okay? Because Nancy, yeah, she was clapping too, right? And that is meddling. That is overt meddling. That ain't, he, Netanyahu, I tell you what, in his defense, the guy's got balls. The guy has fucking bowling ball size balls, okay? Fucking, and it's, and the, they're the color of the Israeli flag. That's, okay, that's, that's what his balls look like, everyone. So just make sure you got that image in your head. He goes in front of a joint session of Congress and fucking just denigrates the sitting president. And by extension, his designated successor, Hillary Clinton, right? Who I don't even like. This was real meddling in an election. I digress. That's my transition. Well, what happened, though? Netanyahu won again. The guy's been prime minister of Israel for 10 years. I think that makes him the second longest serving uh, prime minister in Israeli history. The guy is a right-wing nutjob. The guy is so anti-Palestinian so extremist in his Israeli nationalism and his support for Israeli religious parties that want to turn Israel into a theocracy, right? That he should be way off the charts of mainstream political discourse. But instead, he's a fucking celebrity in Israel. What does this tell us? This isn't all about Netanyahu. Sure, he's thrice indicted for corruption cases, three separate cases. Sure, he's probably a criminal. Sure, he's corrupt as fuck. Sure, he's a fucking lunatic. That's not the real story. The real story is that Israel elected him again. That tells you how far the Israeli political discourse has shifted to the right. And guess who ran against him? Some guy named, I think, Benny Gantz, right? Formed this new party called the Blue and White Party, right? Based on the colors of the Israeli flag. It's supposed to be like a nationalist, centrist, 
common sense policy. That's how they branded themselves, right, in, in opposition to Netanyahu. But if you actually read their platform, they were so goddamn militant on the Palestinians and so far to the right on you know, any chance of peace with the Palestinians, to which they saw basically no chance, that they could never have been considered an opposition party, even 20 years ago when Yitzhak Rabin was alive and there was actually some sort of hope for peace. Nobody in Israel. What did the Labor Party win? Like three or four seats or some shockingly low number? The, Israel, the Labor Party used to dominate Israeli politics, okay? Center-left Zionism in the form of the Labor Party used to be the mainstream. Guys like Rabin, right? Uh, the, the Guys like Shimon Peres. Uh, guys like the fucking founder of Israel, right? David Ben-Gurion. The Labor Party used to be dominant. Now, it's like a fringe party. It's it's seriously it's such a it's just a, it's a minority. It's it not only is it not get into the ruling party, the ruling coalition. It's it's like it's a joke. That's how far to the right we've moved. And you know Israel and America have moved right together. It's there's there's an insidious connection there. This this brand of right wing populism that's exploding throughout the world. Trump is only one symptom of it. It's a global thing, right? Throughout the West, I mean, populist nationalist leaders who look internally. Uh, and are and are more militarist. They're, they're taking over all over the place, and it scares the hell out of me. But the point here is, I think I'm ready to give a eulogy. Is everybody ready to the two-state solution? Rest in peace, two-state solution. You know what the two-state solution is. It's that really hopeful thing we had in the early 90s where Clinton got Yasser Arafat to shake the hand of Yitzhak Rabin on the White House lawn or Camp David or wherever the fuck. And it looked like there might be a Palestinian state too, that the Palestinians might get their own little rump state. It wasn't going to be much of a state. It was going to be a little piece of shit that was divided into two halves. But hey, they were going to get something. There was going to be peace. There was some idealism. There was hope that there could be a Jewish state and a Palestinian state side by side, that the Israelis would get to have their own sovereignty and they'd get to define themselves as a Jewish entity, which they wanted. And at the same time, they'd get to stay a democracy because – Palestine would not be ruled over with a military iron hand, but would be given some form of autonomy in the, in, in the form of a state, actually. In the form of, this was the promise. That's the two-state solution. And all over the American political spectrum, to this day, everyone says, two-state solution, two-state solution. And I've written in favor of the two-state solution because I think it's the only logical or likely solution. But it's dead, guys. Netanyahu won't even open negotiations with the Palestinians. He says he has no partner. He says there is no one in Gaza or the West Bank that is worthy of me having a peace process with. And so what are we going to do? I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to starve Gaza, literally. We are going to blockade Gaza and keep it as the largest open-air prison, and then occasionally we're going to bomb it and kill civilians and shoot them at the fence. We're going to do that. We're going to keep them stuck in the most densely populated slice of sliver, is a better word, of Earth, right, on the Mediterranean. And the West Bank, well, we're going to keep that surrounded and uh, under essentially military occupation, and we're going to increase settlements. We're going to continue to let Jews move into the lands that are owned by the Palestinians according to international law and set up little communities. And all the while, we're going to have our troops patrolling Jewish-only roads into Jewish-only settlements in Palestinian territory. That's the answer. And we're not even going to try to negotiate peace. And those Palestinians who live under occupation in West Bank and who live under stranglehold blockade in Gaza, guess what they don't get to do? Vote in Israel. They're dominated by Israel. They're controlled by Israel. They're denied their sovereignty by Israel. 
They don't get to vote in Israeli elections. Of course not, because there's more Arabs than there are Jews. If you add up the, the Arab minority in Israel, which is what, around 20%, and plus all the massive refugees who live in the West Bank and Gaza, it wouldn't be a Jewish state anymore. So Israel can either be a Jewish state or it can be a democracy. Right now, it's choosing to be a democracy. I, it's, I'm sorry, it's choosing to be a Jewish state, but an autocracy. Rest in peace, two-state solution. The election of Netanyahu and the unflinching support of President Donald Trump and the presidents came before him, but especially more, more, more uh, powerfully, right? More one-sided, the support of Trump. The Trump-Netanyahu nexus spells the end of any hope for a one-state solution. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean the problem is going to go away. It means there will be a forever war in the lands that are currently Israel and Palestine. They are not going to quit. The Palestinians, that is. Historically, people like that don't quit. It's only going to increase the radicalism of a demoralized, youthful Palestinian population. It is only going to further um, empower and justify the most radical leaders within the Palestinian movement. And there is going to be a forever war so that there will be two things happening. Number one, the status quo ante, the status quo on the ground is going to be an apartheid state that looks a lot like South Africa. Where Palestinians are second-class citizens who live in little Bantu stands, little slivers of moderately autonomous ghetto, right? Little It's a ghettoization of the West Bank, which looks like Swiss cheese now. So there will be an apartheid state with American blessing. Again, because remember, we weren't so tough on the South Africans. We kind of liked them because they were anti-communists. So we looked the other way while Mandela fucking just suffered in prison. And then later we were like, oh, what a hero. It's like we forget that he was a fucking – designated a terrorist on our watch list until like 1997. So don't be so proud of America if you remember how we treated South Africa. So Israel, with the blessing of the United States, with a pat on the ass from Donald Trump, is going to con continue to rule an apartheid state. And the second thing that's going to happen is there's going to be a civil war. Now, one side has F-16s and Merkava tanks, but the other side's going to have suicide bombers. The other side's going to have rocks, and the other side's going to have AK-47s, and they're going to kneel down in front of tanks and let themselves be run over if necessary. They are not going to quit. They are not going to quit. There is going to be the war in the, in, in the Holy Land is going to only get worse. That's the problem. That's the problem with giving the eulogy to the two-state solution. Be sorry. Be, be careful what you ask for, Netanyahu. Be careful what you ask for, right-wing Israeli movement that's dominating the populace there, because you might just get what you want, which is an apartheid state in a, in, a, in a state of forever civil war. Pay attention, guys. Pay attention to what the assistant president of the United States, Benjamin Netanyahu, does. Pay attention to what he does. This election matters, and it's time for the United States. Don't expect it to happen. It won't happen. But it is long past time for the United States to be a true, honest broker and say, you know what? We were wrong about this. We were too one-sided. We were too lopsided and I support for Israel. And if we ever hope to be an honest broker again, we have got to rein in the Israelis. We have got to cut off military aid. We have got to put diplomatic pressure on them in the UN. Because if not, that Palestinian blood, it ain't just on Netanyahu's hands. It's on our hands. And I don't mean the government. I mean all of us.
the American people. Our apathy translates into Palestinian blood. And eventually some of that will come back to be visited on us here. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if there's ever – I know there's never been an, an official attack on the United States by anybody of Palestinian descent. But just looking at the, at the desperation, you know, it keeps getting worse and worse. And like you said, turn to Swiss cheese, can't walk down the street, can't feel safe, drones overhead. You go to protest, you might get shot by a sniper. Hopefully it's a, a flesh wound, but it could be a lot worse. This is their reality. And I guess I, I, I just wait for it to become ours. There's, there's no way that on a long enough timeline, these kind of controls don't come to the United States in some way, too, if we keep going in this direction. Hey, when John F. Kennedy was, uh, was killed, assassinated, very controversially, Malcolm X said that the chickens had come home to roost, right? which is a certain way of him saying that, that uh, Kennedy got what he deserved. And, and I don't think he meant it exactly like that. That's how it was taken. He meant that the actions of the Kennedy administration caused an, uh, an equal and opposite reaction, and that we should look at his death, his assassination, as, as not so surprising. Well, what you said is true. The chickens of American support for Israel are going to come home to roost. Whether it's a Palestinian terrorist or a Palestinian fighter, I'm almost sick of that word terrorist, coming over to the United States and attacking us, or a motivated Palestinian sympathizer elsewhere in the Arab world, you know, like those 15 Saudis who flew planes into America's Twin Towers. This is what happens. So if Palestinian blood is on our hands, we, the people, so is the American blood in future attacks. Guys, you can't do whatever you want in the world and then be shocked when there are terrorist attacks in America. Because the chickens, they're coming home. They're coming home. We ain't going to stop them all. Even if we bake this into a police state and we're on our way, we're on our way to the American police state, even police states get attacked by terrorists, sometimes even more so. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time.